Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, where we plan to nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a food patriot to the natural world, and a person who occasionally participates in the world's oldest profession. This is what we're going to be talking about today. In studio with us is Maria Westerly. Maria has a Four Seasons Foraging. Good morning. Welcome. Good morning. And joining us by phone is Samuel Thayer. He's the author of three books, Foraging Harvest, Nature's Garden, a Guide to Identifying, Harvesting, and Preparing Edible Wild Plants, Incredible Wild Edibles, 36 Plants That Can Change Your Life. Um, so author of the three books. Um, so welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you. It's great to be here. Glad to be here. Um, and so you started, you mentioned that in, in your book, Samuel, that uh, foraging is really the world's oldest um, profession. Yeah, indeed. I mean, we've been foraging for uh, longer than we've been human beings, so it's been going on quite a while. And what was your what's your basic story? Tell tell your story of how you got into foraging. Uh, you know, I was hungry as a child, <laughs> and I didn't really separate foraging from stealing from my neighbor's garden. <laughs> and I just it was a way to get free food. Uh, and later on, when I was maybe eleven or twelve. I discovered there was books about this topic, and um, I was just like, wow, I, I can eat more than these 16 plants that I learned, you know, uh, just on the fly from relatives or whoever would tell me something. Um, and that opened up this world to me where all of a sudden I could, I could read books, I could read plant identification books, I could figure out what things were, I could know if you could eat them or not, and it was so exciting to me mm. but i stayed hungry i get hungry every single day <laughs> <laughs> and you're sort of a self-reliant person i love this I'm, I'm a quote from your book in the introduction today hunting and gathering is a way of life for me wild grains teas nuts fruit juices berries flowers and vegetables are stored away for the seasons and every day at almost every meal i eat something that was a gift of unbroken land in a simple cabin at the edge of the woods along a dead end country road i'm exactly where i always wanted to be yeah i'm in i'm in a different cabin now. <laughs> uh, but um i would I, I think my life uh, one great advantage that i've had in my life um i've realized as i've gotten older is continuity of interest i'm interested mm. in the same things now that i was when i was six or seven and um i hope that i'm doing all the same things uh 20 years from now uh, just more of it and hopefully a little better uh, you know I have I have about 60 gallons of hickory nuts to make into oil so I have foraging stuff to do all winter long nice wow that's so um, Maria you are local Sam is in Wisconsin and you're here in the Twin Cities and yep. you have four seasons foraging yeah four season foraging four season foraging yes so what's your personal story well, it's nearly the opposite of Sam's. Um, I grew up in inner city Milwaukee. I never really, you know, had much exposure to wilderness areas. Didn't really do any camping or anything until I left home um, to go to college when I was 18. And it was around that time that I started getting interested in um, traditional skills, things like foraging, um, herbal medicine, uh, you know, making baskets and that kind of thing. And it was just from a desire to connect more to the non-human world and to be more sustainable and self-reliant. And yeah, I just basically got some field guides and started going out into the woods and, you know, parks and just like down the street and <laughs> identifying things and picking them and eating them. And, uh, and I actually, um, after a year, I dropped out of school and just went traveling, like hitchhiking around the country with some friends of mine. And we were just, you know, doing a lot of camping and a lot of eating of wild edibles and, you know, reading of, you know, we just had some like basic Peterson's field guide um, that we would use to experiment with different edible plants. So that's how it started for me. Cool. Now, um, but eating from the wild, that's really dangerous, right? Not as no. dangerous as people make it seem <laughs> you know um i'm not sure if you said that facetiously or not but one of the things i try to tell people is um how exceedingly safe it really is it's hard to find any outdoor activity that it could be construed as safer i mean i've searched really long and hard 
for cases of serious poisonings or um, even fatal poisonings. And fatal poisonings that could be attributed to foraging occur at a rate of about uh, one to three per decade in North America. That would be plant foraging. With mushroom foraging, it's more like one to five per year. Okay. Um, but even your book, you do say if you have to rely on a book for um, for foraging, that's not really the place to start. It's just looking at a book. So how should someone start learning about foraging? What are the steps? Well, I started from a book. <laughs> um, but looking back, it's like, yeah, it was kind of stop and go. And the books I was using at first, um, I mean, as Sam will tell you, the resources that are out there of varying quality, like some books are really great and have a lot of information and are very accurate. And some books are just like, not that. And, you know, it's just authors like repeating what other authors have written and maybe mis even misidentifying plants sometimes. Um, so I just start out, like I said, with some basic field guide and it wasn't really the best thing, but through experience, I was able to learn. Um, and Sam, I'm sure you'll have an idea and a good field guide for people. Yeah, well, uh, to add to what Maria said, um, you know, books are not necessarily the best way to start, but oftentimes they're the only way to start. And so, in you know, uh, go for it. Um, you know, if you use common sense, you're, you're going to be fine. Um, you just follow the basic rule of you don't eat something if you don't know what it is. And... It sounds obvious, and it is, but when there is a plant or mushroom poisoning, it is almost always the result of somebody just ignoring that basic rule. Don't eat something if you don't know what it is. Yeah. Um, and I recommend to people, um, you know, get several books. Um, you know, there's not one book called How to Be Healthy or How to Be a Doctor that's going to cover everything you would need to know. You know, build your library of resources over time. Everyone that I know that's into foraging has six or eight or 12 or 30 books. Um, there's a lot to know. Um, but just go one plant at a time. And you don't need to know the whole language and the whole repertoire. You just need one, and then you can use it. Yeah, and I would add to that, too, like, YouTube can be a great resource. Um, like, back when I was starting, there wasn't a lot of foraging information on the Internet. Like, you know, this was, like, 15 years ago or something. Um, but now there's tons of information out there. And, again, you have to make sure it's from a trusted source because some of these things that are out there aren't accurate. But by and large, there's a wealth of information that you can tap into. And Maria, you offer local classes. And we're intentionally doing this story in January because um, you're going to have a winter foraging class coming up here. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I'm doing an evergreen foraging class with Ingebretsons, which is a local um, Scandinavian store in Minneapolis. Um, so I did this class last year in December, and it went really well. Um, the class was full. There's people on the waiting list. Like basically, what we did was uh, most of the class was spent in the kitchen. So we were like cooking with evergreens, and then for part of the class, we went out and looked at the actual trees to learn how to identify them. Um, we won't be doing that this year. It'll be all indoors. I'll have pictures and you know twigs and samples and that kind of thing. But um, yeah, a lot of evergreens are edible, and people don't. A lot of people don't realize this, and. It's something that has traditionally been used for uh, during the winter months to get vitamin C, vitamin A, uh, for something to treat coughs and colds and, you know, prevent sickness and that kind of thing. So, Samuel Thayer in, um, in Wisconsin, uh, what are you doing in the winter in terms of foraging? I don't do a lot of foraging in the winter. I do a lot of processing of things that I have foraged in the fall. So, okay. um, we, I, we probably eat more wild food in the winter than any other time of year calorie wise because we're focused on preparation um so you know we, i gather large amounts of acorns and hickory nuts and hazelnuts and you know my wild rice is generally processed in the not in the winter um but so there's all kinds of that work to do and just cooking and enjoying all the stuff that we've collected and stored um i do collect you know some evergreen products during the winter and you know like i collect chaga and some other fungi but i don't harvest a whole lot in the winter but you don't have to go too far south to, 
where, wherever the ground isn't frozen, there are lots and lots of root vegetables to collect all winter long. So cool. There's still a lot. To I, I tried the acorn, tried making acorn flour once. It was a complete and total disaster. Oh, no. <laughs> so what are your steps? How did you, how did you, uh, how did you do your acorns? You know, there's a lot of ways to prepare acorns, and it can definitely be a disaster. And I've tasted a few of my own disasters and a lot of other people's disasters. <laughs> but the, the traditional preparation methods that Native people use on this continent, if followed accurately, will make a pretty darn good food product. Um, so you need so a nice running creek with clean water. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there's there's adaptations to it that work really well. So um, I like... Uh, a finely ground flour leach in cold water, and I've made uh, a leaching tray that I line with a cloth, and I put the finely ground acorn flour in there and then percolate water through it somewhere between three and six times. Um, and it depends. The, the biggest factor is how uniformly fine you can get that flour. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to leach the acorn in boiling water, you can do that on the wood stove, and we occasionally do that. Um, but you want larger chunks so they don't, like, dissolve into the liquid. You get a very different product from the cold leaching versus the hot leaching. So we're going to need to take a break, and we're talking all about the world's oldest profession, which is foraging. Foraging is the world's oldest profession. And with us is Samuel Thayer. He's on the phone. Um, he's written several books, including The Forager's Harvest, and uh, Maria Wesley uh, from uh, the Twin Cities with Four Season Foraging. Satisfy my soul, Total Dog Company exists for people who are serious about their dogs. People who want the best nutrition and the best gear for their dogs. Total Dog Company's mission is to provide high-quality, practical food and gear for dogs and only dogs. Nothing frou-frou or frivolous. Nothing with suspect ingredients. No cat food or wild bird food. Totally dog. From head to wagging tail. Find us in New Hope off of 169 at 9432 36th Avenue North and at TotalDogCompany.com. Tom Hartman here for All Energy Solar. One of the myths about solar is that you save more if you wait, but waiting to switch can actually cost you more. While tax rebates make solar affordable, those rebates are often limited and decrease over time. So when you wait, you risk losing some of the incentives that make solar so easy to afford today. And besides, the sooner you get your All Energy Solar system, the sooner you reduce or even eliminate that high electricity bill. Make the switch today at allenergysolar.com. This is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 7 to 8 a.m. Many listeners know that I founded Human Inspiration Works, LLC, which trains on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming, diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on diversity and inclusion. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change the way they see the world. I'd love to help make your organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com. Thank you. Tap, taste, and treasure at Vinaigrette, where we have some warm seasonal recipes all ready to create dynamite meals. Our fig balsamic vinegar pairs perfectly with roasted Brussels sprouts or baked brie. And sweet potatoes are always a winner, but never more than when they're roasted with a drizzle of vinaigrette cinnamon or orange-fused extra virgin olive oil on top. Come in today for more custom-crafted food and cocktail recipes at Vinaigrette, 50th and Xerxes in Minneapolis, and 287 Water Street in downtown Excelsior. Online at vinaigrettemn.com. Hi, this is Mike Papantonio from Ring of Fire. Ring of Fire is a direct, smart, and i got to promise you, a fearless progressive talk show. Join me, Mike Papantonio, and my co-host Bobby Kennedy Jr. and Sam Cedar as we take on the large corporate conglomerates and that radical right-wing media that dominate America's airwaves. Ring of Fire, Saturdays from 3 to 6 and Sundays from 6 to 9 p.m. on AM 950. It is the progressive voice of Minnesota. Hi, Matt McNeil for Rudy Luther Toyota. With the road trips we took in December, we're glad we took them in our Toyota Sienna. Whether they're family, friends, or get-togethers, the Sienna was always the most comfortable way to drive. Plenty of room for all the stuff we needed to take with us, the safety and reliability you get with a Sienna, the extras which make road trips easy, and the room to stretch on out. Rudy Luther Toyota Siennas are the most fun, safe, and reliable vehicles we've ever driven. Test drive one yourself at Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. Welcome back 
to Food Freedom Radio, where we plan to nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, and with us in studio is Maria Wesserly. She has four-season foraging here in the Twin Cities. And joining us by phone is Samuel Thayer, author of three books, including The Forager's Harvest. And Sam, on your website, um, your headline is Connecting People and Nature Through the Ancient Craft of Foraging. What does this mean, this connection? Well, you know, we are part of nature, although we often don't believe we are, or we don't think about what that means that we are. Um, and I feel like uh, we reach our greatest level of personal satisfaction and mental and physical health when we have this intimate relationship to nature that really um, foraging epitomizes it, or I could say that foraging is most of that relationship. And when we don't have that relationship, we become disconnected, we don't care about nature, and we can't know very much. We can't know nature on a personal level. Um, And you can't care about or love or protect something that you don't know. So I think it's really important for our personal reasons and for ecological reasons um, to, to maintain that relationship with nature through foraging. And there's other ways to have that relationship, but I think foraging is, is the most effective way and for most of human history has been the primary way. Right. It's a relationship we have with our food. Food nourishes us. How do we nourish food? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I agree with a lot of that. And um, a lot of the questions I get about foraging are about the sustainability of it and, you know, people being concerned about over-harvesting and you know, ruining the ecology and that kind of thing, which is a valid concern, and you want to be careful about how much you harvest, especially of, like, delicate native plants, um, maybe not even harvest those at all. But um, like Sam was saying, we are part of nature, and this view that we shouldn't go out and pick things is a view that humans are separate from nature, so we need to leave it alone. Like, the less we touch it, the better. Um, and, yeah, I just don't agree with that i think that the more yeah. we interact with it the more we feel for it and protect it exactly i've been meaning to verify it but i think it's i think this is true someone shared with me that there is three times as much land in the united states plat- planted in uh bluegrass grass in residential yards than there are planted in corn and soybeans wow and so and you think of all the pesticides and fertilizers and how bad that is for the water and the pollinators and it, it, if we would make a shift mm-hmm. to reciprocal relationships with nature wow that'd be kind of fun <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely Yeah, the other thing I was caught is, you know, we used to, humans once believed that the earth was the center of the universe. And I think when we're in a place like land, sometimes we get confused and we think humans are the center of the land rather than participating in an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So when we can actually be out and foraging or, you know, um, taking food, putting it in our mouth, digesting it, um, there's um, a fundamental essence of that that is actually quite lovely and beautiful. You know, I um, I really sympathize with the the worry, the concern that people have about sustainability with foraging. But I think people often frame it the wrong way because the act of gathering food creates gratitude. And gratitude is an instinct. It's like fear of the dark. Everybody experiences it under certain circumstances. It's like being scared by thunder. And when you put someone in a circumstance where they gather, they cannot help but experience gratitude. And gratitude is the instinct that tells us to think beyond ourselves, think about the bigger picture. That's why I think that foraging is so important. And we see again and again and again that the people who are engaged in using a plant, gathering the plant, they're the ones who protect it. They're the ones who care about it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I really feel like people are missing that connection. People who don't have it don't even know quite what they're missing. I, I, I love that saying, gratitude is an instinct. I think you're spot on with that. And yet we can also look at the tragic history, like the history of ginseng, um, mm-hmm. and what did happen to the ginseng um, here. And Samuel, Samuel, do you know the, the history of ginseng? Um, a, a, a fair amount. Um, and, you know, 
it, it, that's a little bit of, a, of an anomalous situation because it was almost all for market collecting, um, not, not people collecting ginseng for their own use. But the other interesting aspect of the ginseng history is that in those parts of the country where people intended to make their living from ginseng over the long term, they still have ginseng. So I was camping in Georgia a couple of years ago, and I was shocked to see ginseng growing between the campsites in a public campground, mm. hundreds of ginseng plants. Um, but when Wisconsin and Minnesota were settled, the farmers who settled here intended to pay for their property with ginseng, and they didn't care if that ginseng persisted, and so they liquidated it in much of the Midwest. Um, so it was kind of a different history, and I think even though it seems like a case where oh, this is what can happen when people over-harvest or when people don't care, it, it shows the difference between that collection for personal use or with a long-term view and collecting with a commercial-only view and not thinking about the long-term. That's fascinating. I mean, uh, it'd be wonderful if people would get together and try to plant and restore the ginseng that was here. Mm -hmm. Do you know, are, are anyone, are people trying to do that anywhere? A lot of people are on their own property, and they're managing it on their own property, but they're not telling anyone they're doing it. Right, which because, is smart. Yeah, at $1,500 a pound, you know, some, I mean, someone's going to sneak in and steal it, and that's the big problem with with ginseng is people try to manage ginseng on their property and someone figures it out i mean there's there's a lot of these ginseng harvesters they're traipsing across public property or private property when it's rainy and nobody's outside and monitoring everyone else's ginseng and then taking it when it's at a certain stage oh that is sad that is sad so let's talk about the the principles of um so, so, so what I'm hearing is a huge distinction between foraging as a way of life and the extractive foraging, the commercialization or marketing. There's, there's a difference between those two. Is that, that what we're... Yeah. Well, you can do anything irresponsibly. And, um, and, you know, you can forage irresponsibly, but I feel like the natural tendency of the forager is to, through gratitude develop a responsible attitude towards foraging. I don't know foragers that I consider, oh, that's, that's a real jerk who doesn't care. Everybody that I meet who's really into foraging for their personal use develops that attitude of, of gratitude. Yeah, I mean, you hear horror stories of, you know, people digging up all the echinacea or people, you know, breaking branches to get berries and wounding the tree and... Um, yeah, like Sam says, I don't personally know anyone like that. I've heard concerns. Um, I know that there's, you know, some species that are being harvested, especially for uh, market purposes that are in decline, like wild leeks or ramps, for example, and, you know, fiddlehead ferns. Those are all popular in restaurants and becoming popular in, you know, farmer's markets and grocery stores. So, um, but in general, yeah, I believe that foraging connects you to nature and encourages you to protect it. Great. We're talking all things foraging. Uh, with us in studio is Maria Westerly, and she's with Ford Season Foraging. And joining us by phone is Samuel Thayer, um, author of several books, including The Forager's Harvest. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Tap, taste, and treasure at Vinaigrette, where we have some warm seasonal recipes all ready to create dynamite meals. Our fig balsamic vinegar pairs perfectly with roasted Brussels sprouts or baked brie. And sweet potatoes are always a winner, but never more than when they're roasted with a drizzle of vinaigrette cinnamon or orange-fused extra virgin olive oil on top. Come in today for more custom-crafted food and cocktail recipes at Vinaigrette, 50th and Xerxes in Minneapolis and 287 Water Street in downtown Excelsior. Online at vinaigrettemn.com. This is New Beginnings, hosted by award-winning broadcaster and speaker, Freddie Bell. Freddie, this generation of the baby boomers, people are living longer, so the baby boomers are taking care of elderly parents. Let's talk about your health, and specifically, let's talk about Medicare. Our show features the concerns of America's 78 million baby boomers in employment, finance, health and nutrition, and even entertainment. Catch New Beginnings with Freddie Bell, Saturdays at 11 on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. This is Chad, owner of AM950. I've been telling you about my friends at Snap Construction who are arguably the most well-reviewed exterior construction company in the metro. 
Don't just take my word for it. Take a look at all their reviews online. Winter is the most cost-effective time of the year to complete your construction project. A majority of Minnesotans choose to have their work completed on their home in the summer when they should be enjoying the weather. As a result, the demand for labor in the summer is much higher. The most cost-effective way to improve or restore your home is in the winter due to the lower demand. Right now, Snap Construction is offering an additional 30% off of labor to the AM950 listeners on your next construction project between now and the end of February. Call 612-333-SNAP and mention AM950 for an additional 30% off. As always, Snap Construction stands by their work with a lifetime craftsmanship warranty. Don't wait to get a free estimate by calling 612-333-SNAP or find them online at snapconstruction.com. Financing options available. Did you realize that Drink in the Style is available on iTunes, Google Play, and pretty much every other podcast platform out there? You can listen to past episodes of Drink in the Style or maybe download our really cool martini glass graphic or just listen to your favorite episode again and again. But if you do, I need to ask you for a quick favor. Hop online and give us a five-star rating. It helps others find the show and also boosts my fragile ego. Drink in the Style. It's a great way to kill Sundays or really anytime at all. Stop and listen for a second. Do you hear that? It's peace, quiet, and tranquility. After a busy holiday season, that's what you'll experience at Big Bear Lodge just off the Gunflint Trail. There's always an abundance of snow and winter activities like ice fishing, snowshoeing, snowmobiling, and world-class cross-country skiing. Then cozy up in one of Big Bear Lodge's guest rooms or authentic woodsy cabins. Come find your smile at Big Bear Lodge. More at BigBearLodgeMN.com. With your AM 950 weather, I'm Brett Johnson. Look for sunny skies today with a high near 40. Tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 29. Saturday, sunny with a high near 41. And Sunday, cloudy with a high around 34. Eat Local Minnesota is a resource to find truly independent Minnesota restaurants. Those restaurants feature high-quality food and unique eating experiences with great wines, local foods, micro-brews, original dishes, vegetarian options, and much more. Find a full list of all those restaurants at eatlocalminnesota.com. With your AM 950 weather, I'm Hunter Haas. Tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 29. Saturday, mostly sunny with a high near 41. And Sunday, mostly cloudy with a high near 33. EatLocalMinnesota.com is your way to find unique local restaurants offering one-of-a-kind food and atmosphere. Your choice is setting from casual to trendy. Great spots for date nights, evenings with friends, or business occasions. Make sure that the money you spend stays local. Find out more at EatLocalMinnesota.com. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and in studio, Maria Westerly with Four Season Foraging. You can find out more information about her at fourseasonforaging.com. And also, Samuel Thayer um, from uh, Wisconsin is joining us by phone. And you can get more information from he- about him at foragingforestersharvest.com. You know, are there some things to forage that can really help the ecology? Garlic mustard? There are things to forage that we should be foraging that would help the ecology of our urban areas? Uh, yeah, there's certainly quite a lot of invasive species that are edible. Garlic mustard, for example. Um, autumn olive is another one that's highly invasive. Um, and there's other plants that are, you know, they're not native, but they... To me, they would be considered naturalized, like things like dandelion or... Um, Queen Anne's lace or, um, you know, like just common weeds that you find in your yard, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> um, which I know some people consider invasive or are considered invasive in some states, but in some areas they see more naturalized. And, you know, if they're not taking over like healthy ecosystems, then I don't really see them as a big problem. Um, but with something like garlic mustard, it does actually invade forests and it will take over to the point where it's like, I've read up to 70% of the plant life in a forest. There's more garlic mustard growing in our parks here, and the, the parks would love you to harvest. I know I, I participated a little bit in Dakota County in Lebanon Hills. We did a training and because a lot of the parks, they don't want people to go into the um, park. So, Samuel Thayer, do you know what the rules are in terms of public parks and what uh, in terms of gathering food? I mean, I know the garlic it, mustard. It, <laughs> go it really it. depends on... Where you are 
Um, and, and, I mean, like, for example, Wisconsin and Minnesota allow collecting of seeds, fruits, or, or, sorry, fruits, nuts, berries, and mushrooms in their state parks, um, not greenery or roots. Um, it, so it really depends on, on where you are. And there's a lot of, like, gray areas, like a vacant lot in the city or a, city, a weedy plant in a city park. I don't know what the rules are. I will grab something if I'm hungry, and <laughs> no one seems to care. So a big a big part of this is, like, be reasonable. I mean, is there a park employee in St. Paul who's going to be angry if someone is, eats a few dandelion heads? Or, or you know, I don't think so. Um, mm. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to say, yes, there are. <laughs> yeah, there, 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 there may be somewhere. I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure there is somewhere. But I'm, I'm going to say that, that 99 out of 100 or more, are that's not something they're concerned about. Um, but, uh, you know, and it, it, so it, 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 it's, it's very much like, like foraging itself in terms of what's responsible. It's on a case-by-case basis, you know. There's certain species that I collect, but in a certain circumstance, I would say, oh, don't touch that here. Um, and, you know, the same thing. I mean, it's legal to collect blackberries on the side of the road and it's on a small rural road. But I may say, well, this landowner is ornery. I'm not collecting here. Um, so it, it's, uh, it, it's, not a, it's, it's not high on my concern list. Yeah, I mean, I would say for the city parks, though, um, people do actually get fined for harvesting from city parks um in st paul it's completely illegal to harvest anything even like picking a leaf off a tree is illegal technically um and in minneapolis it was the same way until very recently just a few months ago they passed a law making um i think it's like nine species of fruits and nuts that you can now legally harvest in most of the minneapolis parks or some areas they don't want you to forage in because they're um, they might be like a protected ecosystem, like the Eloise Butler wildflower garden, or it might be a planted area like the Rose garden. Um, but no, people are pretty serious about it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, I've gotten in trouble before just trying to hold workshops where we're not even foraging anything. We're just talking about things that are edible and like, they don't want that even, um, in a lot of places. So um, that said, I have done a garlic mustard workshop with the um, Minneapolis Park System, which was really great. Like we, you know, got to go out and pick tons of this invasive plant, and then we went into a kitchen area and cooked with it and made. We should do things. that. We should do that this spring because I know they'll be excited about the because the garlic mustard is really pro- posing a lot of problems. So, mm-hmm. how do you cook garlic mustard? I mean, that's something that we really have. For those who think there's a lot of dandelions, there is actually a bigger problem with garlic mustard than there is dandelions. So, um, Samuel, you want to talk about what garlic mustard is and what people can do with it? Well, you know, I like garlic mustard as a vegetable at a certain stage when it's like. 8 to 12 inches tall before it blooms. I really like the stalks, and I will, I will often peel the leaves off the stalk and use it in soup. A lot of people use the leaves for pesto, and it's great, um, but it, they're more of a flavoring. They're very strong. It's hard to eat a large quantity of it. If you want to combine mass destruction of garlic mustard with a meal, I think the best thing to focus on is those, those very tender young shoots. Um, and that's usually in the Twin Cities area, like about the 5th to the 15th of May, uh, about about 10 days before peak bloom. And, um, you know, there's something like at that time of year in my foraging workshops, I, I'll tell people I have two particular places I do workshops every year, and I say to people, okay, this is part of foraging. We're going to spend 20 minutes here, and we are going to pull garlic mustard. That's all we're going to do, and we're going to pile it here, and, and then we'll remove it in mass when we're done because that's part of responsible foraging. And I get to show people these are all the plants that this garlic mustard is going to crowd out if we don't do this, and the park departments certainly aren't doing it. No, there's, it's a lot of work for the park departments and, and trying to find that coordinated effort between people and park and, and how we, um, I, I mean, the separation that we have from nature is such a part of our culture that, you know, in, in, in parks where it's like, here's the park and he, this is where I go to be outside and this is, I go to the store to eat at this. <laughs> so it's how to end the separation and sort of 
meld in a way. <laughs> I know I'm so, like a pause there. So uh, let's get to something basic. Um, so are there some things that are dangerous to eat that you really should avoid? I mean, I remember hearing something about a poisonous lettuce lookalike that's kind of taken over invasively. Do you know about that, Samuel? A lettuce lookalike. Um, I haven't heard of of that. Um, it's hard for me to know when people use the word lookalike. You know, people construe different plants as looking similar, um, but really. Um, you need to know what something is, um, and then it's safe to eat if, if it's an if it's edible plant and you're using it at the right stage. Um, I don't really believe in these broad general rules about uh, groups that are and aren't safe. Some people will say avoid the carrot family, um, you know, and then you've eliminated 10% of the wild edibles in the temperate world. Hmm. Um, and, and so avoid the poisonous members of the carrot family. And if you don't know what any particular plant is, you don't. nobody has business eating it anyways. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, it's, I mean, it's really on a case-by-case basis. And, and all, all the serious plant poisonings in North America that I have found are attributed to just, like, four or five species, um, you know, poison hemlock, water hemlock, and foxglove uh, digitalis. Those are those are the only ones that I have found that have had very serious or fatal poisonings in North America in the last 50 years. Yeah, and I think um, you mentioning the carrot family just reminds me of when I was first learning to identify Queen Anzales, and um, which is basically the wild version of carrot. Like you can eat the root, um, you can use the seeds for seasoning, uh, you can even eat the flower and the stem and you know use the leaves for seasoning if you want um but there's just all these dire warnings about you know queen anzalis looks exactly like poison hemlock and you're going to confuse the two and like you have to be a very experienced forager to eat this and so i was like very very cautious about eating this plant um, but then when I finally saw poison hemlock, I was like, oh, I would never mistake that for queen anzalis <laughs> like um and i know I don't want to make it sound like overly simple because I know like when some people are first starting out, it can be easy to, you know, see a plant with a big white um, flower and, you know, feathery leaves and say like, oh, that's Queen Anzalis, like, even though it could be any number of carrot family species. Um, but it's not like you have to get a PhD in botany to be able to distinguish the two, you know, it's just follow a few simple guidelines and you're fine. So, yeah, where, where people run into trouble is when they don't try to identify the plant. When they simply think, that looks like maybe it's such and such, and then they go eat it. Mm-hmm. When you look in the case histories of plant poisonings and mushroom poisonings, virtually all of them follow that pattern. It's typically males between the ages of 15 and 40, the same the same demographic that gets most of the rattlesnake bites, and it's not coincidence. <laughs> the same demographic that has the cliff diving accidents. The same demographic that gets into fights. Right? It, I mean, it's 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 brash, ridiculous behavior. People who say, "Hey, that that looks like such and such. I want to show off to someone by eating it," and eat the plant having no idea what it is. That accounts for almost all of the you know, supposed misidentifications. I'm not saying you can't misidentify a plant, but you have so many opportunities to not poison yourself. I mean, and I think Maria and I and other people that teach about this topic, we find ourselves assuaging people's fears again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And it's fears of things that almost never happen. I mean, I... I used to be a very avid bicyclist, and I've been hospitalized, and I've had to pay more than $15,000 for bicycle-related injuries, and almost every serious bicyclist I know has had an accident or has been hospitalized, and hundreds die every year, Um, and yet people don't have that fear associated with bicycling or horseback riding for that matter. Um, but this fear that follows foraging around is completely disproportionate to the actual danger. As I said before, I think you can hardly find a safer activity because we've been doing this for hundreds of thousands of years. We have a set of instincts around it. Like we're afraid of lions, roars, and big canine teeth because we have instincts telling us to, not because we get killed by lions a lot. Um, I know that happened recently, but, um, you know, 
whereas with foraging, uh, we have all these instinctive fears that say, don't eat this plant if you don't know what it is. And for the people who forage, that comes out in a real healthy way. But for people who don't forage, it comes out in this irrational fear, like trying to bubble to the surface. When I like earlier when you said gratitude is also an instinct. And, and so what is the potential? What's the upside of foraging? Well, I think there's a lot of upsides. Um, foraged foods, by and large, are very healthy. You know, when you look at something like dandelion or nettle or lamb's quarters and compare the nutritional value of that to, um, you know, romaine lettuce or even kale or broccoli or, you know, something that is domesticated but has a high nutritional value, um, wild foods generally blow that out of the water. Um, and then, you know, as we've been touching on, there's the connection to the non-human world um there's connection to other people like for example i've gone out in the city and just knocked on people's doors and said like hey can i pick the mulberries in your yard (laughs) you know can i pick your dandelions (laughs) it's like um it forges community which is awesome forges community so we're gonna take a break you're listening to food freedom radio we're talking about foraging Seward Co-op, serving the community for nearly 45 years, invites you to shop their two convenient locations, both offering the strong commitment to local producers and healthy foods you've come to expect. Seward focuses on locally grown and raised products, fair trade, and environmental sustainability. Shop their selection of meats, artisan cheeses, and house-made baked goods. Find Seward at 2823 East Franklin Avenue or the Friendship Store on 38th Street and 3rd Avenue in Minneapolis. More at seward.coo. I'm Connie Burek, co-host of Awakened Living Infusion Radio Show. Join Michelle Kitzmiller and I as we focus on all aspects of health, wellness, spirituality, and growth from a mind, body, spirit, emotion perspective. On the Awakened Living Radio Show, we will discuss stress, self-care, fear, happiness, beliefs, communication, joy, pain, trauma, and more. Join us for the Awakened Living Infusion radio show Saturdays at 10 a.m. Let us share with you ways to infuse vitality into life. With all the convenient big box stores that sell appliances, why do so many Minnesotans choose Warner Stellion? Check online to learn that Warner Stellion is a Minnesota family-owned business for over 60 years. Warner Stellion sells more brands than anyone else, and our passionate specialists are committed to impressing you so much that you'll refer us to everyone you know. That's our mission here at Warner Stellion. Ask around, check us out online, and when it's your time to buy appliances, join over 300,000 Minnesota homeowners and choose the specialists, Warner Stellion. I'm Candy Braffle, publisher of the Twin Cities edition of Natural Awakenings Magazine and host of Green Tea Conversations, a new show for people who are on a journey to take responsibility for their health and play a more active role in their family's well-being. Join me this Sunday at 10 a.m. as I interview Jackie Flaherty, the original publisher of Natural Awakenings, as she shares her journey in bringing the magazine to life. So grab a cup of tea and join the conversation as we awaken to natural health. Visit us at naturaltwincities.com. Supporting the best local and independently owned restaurants in the Twin Cities has never been easier. You'll find an expansive list of local dining options at eatlocalminnesota.com. From classic American comfort food to authentic flavors from around the world. Experience cozy fireside dining at the Downtowner Woodfire Grill in St. Paul, specializing in fresh seafood, fire-roasted meats, and pizzas all cooked over an oak-burning fire, and salads and sandwiches, too. Join them for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week, located at 253 West 7th Street with plenty of free parking, or online at downtownerwoodfire.com. Burger Moe's is the perfect neighborhood gathering spot before and after Excel Center events or anytime. Offering 20 fresh, never frozen burger varieties, more than 60 beers on tap, and happy hours twice daily. Burger Moe's is located at 242 West 7th Street in St. Paul with plenty of free parking and online at burgermoe's.com. Try to see it my way. Do I have to keep on talking till I can go? Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and with us in studio is Maria Westerly. She has four-season foraging here in the Twin Cities. And Samuel Thayer is joining us via phone um, from Wisconsin, and you can get information for him about his place at foragersharvest.com. And so both of you do um, trips. So one of the best ways for people to learn about foraging is with each with is face-to-face in person yes. actually doing it. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I started doing workshops maybe 10 years ago or something like that. Um, I was living in Michigan on a uh, farm and education center with a lot of like 300 acres or something like that. And there was a lot of opportunity for, well, for me personally to go foraging, but also to have classes around it and, you know, other things too. I enjoy lots of naturalist endeavors such as, you know, animal tracking and bird calls and that kind of thing. So, Cool. How about you, Sam? You've got classes? Yeah, I have a, a number of workshops uh, coming up this year. Some are weekend uh, workshops, and but there's also some shorter ones, and I'll, I'll be scheduling a few closer to the Twin Cities. Great. So you can find any, any of those on my website. And you also have a DVD, and one of the things I found funny about the DVD promo is that you talked about one of the best places to forage is an untended garden. Mm-hmm. And so talk about that a bit. Yeah, I mean, weedy plants, uh, proportional to their the biomass of that ecosystem, uh, tend to be very edible. Most garden weeds produce something that's edible. Uh, and so an, a poorly tended or untended garden or a recently disturbed piece of ground, like a dirt pile at a construction site, those kind of places are usually just covered with edible plants. If you want to find edible plants in any landscape, Look for disturbance combined with nutrients, and you're going to find food plants growing there. Yeah, so, I mean, in my yard, I, I, have, I get greens consistently pretty much from March till October, November. And so one of my favorite things is just go outside, grab whatever greens I feel like, and scramble it with eggs. So do you have simple things that you do frequently that you just get a lot of food from? Yeah, I mean, actually, what you just described is is great. Um, you know, fried greens are such an easy way to incorporate greens into your diet. And for me, I mean, I I love the bulky calorie staple foods like nuts and grains. But if you want to really easily add wild food to your diet and lots of nutrients, learn five to ten common leafy greens that are going to grow in your backyard. And I guarantee you, there's at least ten edible species in your yard. And just incorporate that into easy recipes, like fried onions with some greens in it. And you can eat that as a side dish to almost any main course, and it just packs an incredible nutritional punch. And I think there's something about eating that food from the immediacy. Uh, you pick it and you eat it within minutes of it being picked, mm-hmm. the ultimate freshness. Yeah, yeah, it's way fresher than anything you'll find at the store um, or even going to the farmer's market. You know, things have been picked and stored and not to disparage the farmer's market, but um, <laughs> picking your own food is really great. And especially when it's a wild plant, I really think there's a great connection that happens there. Yeah. And I would love to, um, especially 20, this is the new year is going into new year's resolutions. This was the very first year that we got hazelnuts in our yard. Ooh. Ooh yeah. The squirrels didn't get them. Yeah, no, the squirrels <laughs> didn't get them. Maybe they haven't discovered it. It's the first year, but, okay. um, but just to try to move that around the city more, I mean, why not be planting more hazelnuts and more berries and, and, and doing the permaculture, as I said, through instead of the, the damaging grass, move into this more abundant way of yeah. living. Yeah, I have some friends, um, well, one couple in particular that has a really beautiful, large permaculture yard and you know, they, it's something they've been doing for several years now. And it's awesome going up there and seeing like, the pawpaws and the juneberries and they have like a kiwi vine and all this. I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> like, I didn't even know this plant existed. Um, and yeah, getting that diversity in your own yard is really great. How about you, Sam? How do we encourage the plants to grow that feed us that we can feed or that we can support? Well, you know, I think it's pretty easy in almost any type of landscape. I mean, if anyone has a backyard, there's room for plants there. And there's when you're talking about wild vegetables, you can have something that can grow in any habitat type that you can find. So, I mean, semi-shade, full sun, heavy shade, there is always something appropriate, whether it's horrible sandy soil or the richest mucky soil or clay. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's always something that can do well there. Um, so, you know, create a, a small community in your backyard of, of native plants, and you're going to get wildlife using it. You're going to get insects using it. You're going to get beauty out of it. I mean, you know, some of these edible plants are utterly gorgeous. Um, you know, the, 
sometimes it's called wild golden glow or cut leaf cone flower, native to the Twin Cities area, super common. Um, gorgeous yellow flowers in, in mid to late summer. And that produces edible greens from very, very early spring to early winter. It has mm. four flushes of leaves through the year. And, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a great one that anybody can have and beautify their yard and get food out of it. So where's the best place to find out more information? We're down to our last two minutes. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> best place. Or lots That's of places. Creepy. It's probably face-to-face with people. Um, going to the library and um, just getting out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sam's I mean, site. Sam's books are awesome. I've learned a lot from Sam in person um, when we went to traditional skills gatherings together. Well, yeah, we were both at the same one. Um, and yeah. Sam's books are incredible. There's other books that are similar, like books written from a, you know, more of a first-person perspective. Um, and, yeah, finding classes if you can. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Sam? <laughs> uh, you know, there's find the books that you like and and just just go out and do it. You know, I mean, I mean, just, just go out and spend time in nature and find a plant that catches your eye, figure out what it is. And there's a 50, 50 chance or better that it's a food plant. So just go learn a plant and then, and then find out if it's edible and some things you already know, like violets and dandelions, figure out how to use them. Um, you know, make it fun. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm biased. Of course, I think my books are pretty good. I tried, <laughs> I tried to cover each individual plant with a thoroughness that would make somebody feel comfortable going out and eating it for the first time rather than having a really, really long list of things that I only have two sentences about. Um, but uh, there's Edible Wild Plants of the Prairie, written by ethnobotanist um, from Kansas, Kelly Kincher. Most of those plants are found in Minnesota, and that's a really great resource, really well-researched. There's a lot of good books out there. And uh, yeah, you, then you also have wild plants, incredible wild edibles, thirty-six plants that can change your life. That's, yeah, that's your so third my, there's book. No, there's no overlap in the plants my books cover. It's really just one big book, but I had to split it up because I couldn't, you know, start with a thousand-page book. <laughs> so um, you know, I just had to, to split it up. But all three of them are pretty applicable to the Midwest. Yeah, and if I could do some. Shameless self-promotion. Sure, like go for it. My website, fourseasonforaging.com. I have a blog with articles and videos about identifying different plants. There's recipes on there. There's, um, yeah, lots of, of stuff. <laughs> lots of stuff. And, and how fun. I mean, how basic and fun. Let's, let's do some foraging. I hope it's a, an increasing trend. That's the one question I wanted to do. Are more and more people foraging? I think so. You think so? What do you think, Sam? More people foraging? It seems like it. I don't know if I'd say more and more, but more. More, more. Okay. Yeah, there there seems to be an uptick in in trend. All right. Well, you've been listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. 